This is Kyle McEntee. I'm Executive Director of Law School Transparency, and this is LST's mini-series about women in the law. Today we're recording at Seifarth Shaw in their Boston office. I'm here today with Susan Bocamazzo, and we're moderating a roundtable discussion about the solutions to some of the problems women are facing in the legal profession. So let's meet our five participants. I'm Kristen Glennon-McGurn, a labor and employment counselor and litigator in the Boston office of Seifarth Shaw, LLP a full-service international law firm. I'm Jeff Pokerock, and I'm a professor of law at Suffolk University Law School. My name is Margaret Hinkle. I'm a retired Massachusetts Superior Court judge. I currently work in alternative dispute resolution in the Boston office of JAMS. I'm uh, Gabriel Chung. I'm a family law practitioner in the Boston area. I have my own firm, Infinity Law Group. I'm Maria Walsh, and I'm a mediator and arbitrator who practices in affiliation with JAMS in the Boston area. I'm Susan Bocamazzo. I'm the publisher of Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. And to start our discussion, I'm going to read Model Rule 8.4. It is professional misconduct for a lawyer to engage in conduct that the lawyer knows or reasonably should know is harassment or discrimination on the basis of race, sex, religion, national origin, ethnicity, disability, age, sexual orientation, gender identity, marital status, or socioeconomic status in conduct related to the practice of law. This paragraph does not limit the ability of a lawyer to accept, decline, or withdraw from a representation in accordance with Rule 1.16. This paragraph does not preclude legitimate advice or advocacy consistent with these rules. So Kristen, what are the strongest objections to Model Rule 8.4? I've seen three strong objections at a minimum. I think one is what has now been described by some as a shockingly broad view of what the conduct relating to the practice of law could mean in the context of this new definition. Um, Really could involve any activity that any lawyer engages in, inside or outside the law firm, at any time, could theoretically under this rule result in enforcement activity if the rule is to be enforced uh, with, with vigor. Um, and result in in fairly serious sanctions, including, at the worst-case scenario, a loss of license. Um, So I think there's a concern about the draconian nature of the possible penalties that some have have certainly expressed. I've also seen concern about the fact that there are certain statutory obligations that we as lawyers or employers have that contain their own um, penalties, such as, you know, anti-discrimination laws, for example. So a lawyer mistreating a colleague in a law firm setting, for example, uh, has penalties associated with it under other statutes and obligations that exist already uh, that I think some think are, are sufficient or adequate. And the third, I think, is a, is a sort of a First Amendment challenge. I've read something that former Attorney General Meese described the branding of opinions as deplorable enough to trigger penalties like this is noxious to a free society, something along those lines. So I think there is a concern that this is sort of overly PC or somehow threatens First Amendment rights. And I've seen that expressed as well by others. The panelists have any thoughts on the objections she raised? It's surprising that there's any objections, considering this is all illegal. The only thing that's prohibited is harassment or discrimination. The big change, I think, is that it's going to be now threatening to the individual to act in a harassing or discriminatory way, and the insurance process of a firm or individual insurance will not take care of those types of claims. 
So the objections, especially that by Judge Meese, is rather surprising in light of the fact that this is already criminalized or at least actionable in all sorts of contexts, including in the law firm context. Do all the panelists believe that this new model rule, wonderfully aspirational as it is, is necessary in today's legal climate? The rule itself strikes me as, as a bit of surplusage because of the existence of Title VII and state equivalent laws that prohibit discrimination and harassment. On the other hand, to the extent that it has a salutary effect of educating lawyers, and, and whether it's through some vehicle like this podcast or, or other means, raising the debate and sensitizing people to the nature of conduct that they may be subjected to and may not know whether it's okay for them to object, and this might give them more permission to object, or whether it's conduct in which they engage uh, and they choose to be self-reflective or someone forces them to be, then it may have some positive benefit. My first reaction to it, and I was not familiar with it until I was asked to <laughs> listen to the, the podcast uh, the other night, my first reaction was that, gosh, let's see, it's 1964 when Title VII was passed, and we are still trying to figure out ways to comply with, with Title VII. So how long will it be before this is of, of the same utility? Um, but, as I say, uh, I came down on the side of thinking that if it serves an educational purpose, that may be advantageous. I think if you need this rule in order to be a professional, then there's something wrong with your ideas of what is appropriate workplace behavior to begin with. I run a small law firm. Right now, it's just me and one other female associate. You know, I don't, because I'm not a, a big firm, I don't have all of these policies written down. So we use our best judgment. If somebody needs time off, they get time off. Do I track everything? No, not really. Um, as long as work gets done, I don't really care whether or not it's done in the office or it's done at home or it's done wherever. My associate is Jewish. If it's a Jewish holiday, she gets it off. Quite frankly, I try to make every excuse to take off when possible. Um, they're like, it's, it's, it's National Bosses Day this week. I was like, I'm off. So, so I think as a small firm, this rule would not affect you. And if it does, there, there's just something wrong. During the podcast, Chief Justice McGregor said that a lot of the liability usually falls to either the firm or the insurance company, and that what this does is bring into relevance the person's law license to make it more personal. Do you think it's still surplusage within that framework? Well, I thought that was a perfectly fair point. Um, as a practical matter, if we're talking about conduct within law firms and the ability of employees who are perhaps uh, complaining about an employee who, uh, within the structure of the law firm, holds a position of, of higher rank or responsibility, I think the collateral damage that's done to the professional reputation of the accused is pretty broad. Now, it's not the same as the risk of losing their license to practice law. I suspect, though, before something moves, restraining someone's uh, license or revoking their license, 
the organizations such as here in this state, Board of Bar Overseers and other regulatory bodies are going to uh, impose a fairly high standard of proof that may actually be higher than the one that is, is currently applied as a practical matter to uh, the litigation of Title VII claims. It's hard to sit here you know, with a crystal ball and predict, yes, this will result in 20% more uh, enforcement actions, or will it uh, perhaps result in 1% more enforcement actions? I'm not sure, obviously. I'm thinking, though, if the point is to make the bar um, more inclusive and diverse, then a rule of this sort is a good reminder. It is, you know, perhaps symbolic to the extent that certain jurisdictions may not even adopt it. But if the point is that we're trying to reduce discourteousness in the bar and to promote behavior that is inclusive, um, I think regardless of what the penalties are ultimately for individual lawyers or how much enforcement there is, the presence of the rule as drafted serves as that uh, reminder and sort of the North Star of behavior that we all should be aspiring to if we want to bring back the courteousness of the bar and the professionalism of the practice. Kristen, earlier you mentioned the consequences that could come from this. Can you see people using this as part of a litigation strategy, which is to say, can you see someone bringing a complaint to unnerve opposing counsel, even though that's not what was intended? I can see that. And actually, between you and me, I can think of the opposing counsel against whom I would use this rule. But yes, I do have, you know, I, I can envision that. And I certainly think, you know, we could then end up um, in a situation where we're debating the merits of, uh, it's, it's the tail wagging the dog in litigation, potentially, we're debating the merits of uh, the worthiness of the, of the claim against counsel as compared to the merits of the underlying case. But I certainly think that there are instances in probably all of our professional practice where, you know, there has been behavior by opposing counsel around the edges, and you kind of wish you had some sort of tool to manage that behavior or respond to that discourteousness. It seems to me that those issues aren't always taken up in the courtroom in front of the judge because, of course, you don't necessarily want to take your dirty laundry there. But certainly I can see, you know, the rule being used and potentially misused in that context. So I'm speaking as a family law practitioner. We get sued all the time. Um, I think it's one of those practice areas that has a much higher rate of BBO or other disciplinary complaints filed against not only practitioners, but also judges get a lot of complaints against them because they're family judges rather than a superior court judge or a district court judge. Will this impact um, how people practice and how they take on cases, perhaps? The practice, by its very nature, is very for the most part, a man versus woman kind of situation, for the most part. It's not always like that, obviously, in, in same-sex um, marriages or divorces. Will it also spur litigation or threats of disciplinary complaints from, let's say, your opponent, not, not opposing counsel, uh, your opponent saying, you know, the deposition you took against them was, was too sexist because you're asking them too many personal questions. But sometimes it happens in that context. You're not bullying them. You're asking very personal gender-based questions because you are litigating in a family law context. I think there is a, there could be a harm 
when you have penalties associated with it. But I see in the discussion the need to have this discussion and perhaps have this rule spur the discussion and be aspirational. I know here in Massachusetts, for example, in the past couple of years, there is a requirement for newly barred attorneys to go through this professionalism course. It's a one or two day course, I believe. And part of that is to teach professionalism, civility in the courts, because you have been hammered through law school to perhaps think about how to win your case and how to litigate and how to be zealous and maybe overzealous. And so this course supposedly is supposed to temper that back and bring it back to how do you how how are you supposed to treat your fellow attorneys in the bar? So I like that a rule like this would spur perhaps courses like that for all attorneys, not just newly admitted attorneys, but maybe currently practicing attorneys as well. Question for all of the panelists. Would you report someone to the bar who you felt had violated this rule? Let's start with the fact that in Massachusetts, you are obligated by a separate professional rule of conduct to do so. If you believe there is evidence, if you've observed conduct that you believe makes the person in violation of any rule of professional conduct. There is that mandatory aspect of it. I think one of the challenges, though, is that, blessedly, we are not entirely past, but we are passing the days where blatant forms of discrimination and harassment, the obvious kind, are common. And we are in an era when whether it's in the workplace or in law firms or at law schools, the more insidious form of discrimination and harassment takes other forms that aren't so obvious. So whether it's the failure to recognize that the first speaker gave an exegesis and made an excellent point about something, and then two speakers later, the third speaker repeated exactly the same points. But suddenly, that speaker is the one that gets all of the accolades and the thanks and the acknowledgement of brilliance. It happens that the difference between them is either one of gender or one of race or some other characteristic that the law seeks to protect. The same is true in, in the state of our litigation now in terms of harassment and discrimination, that the conduct that occurs in workplaces that is most frequently alleged by plaintiffs is much more subtle. And so to ask a lawyer, can you both observe, make a judgment about that, and feel comfortable reporting that to a regulatory body, I think it's, it's a very difficult question, I find. And uh, no, not a simple answer, because it is so multifactorial in, in terms of what you consider. I think a lot of what Maria described, I, I would call it, I guess the new age term is called microaggressions, right? That's the, that's the new term. How many microaggressions need to occur before that line is crossed? And if you see it, sometimes it's hard to recognize. I know I've seen it, and I didn't recognize it until well later when I've thought about it. So, um, for example, I've seen situations where it was, you know, two attorneys in a case, for example, and one of the attorneys is a more, uh, it's an older gentleman that has practiced a long time, and on the other side is is a uh, younger woman. 
during the course of litigation, he would always comment about how lovely she looked. Every time, that's when you start, you know, you look, you look really pretty today. That's a really nice outfit. And then they would proceed on the work that they were there to do, whatever it is in court. It sounds like a compliment. Until you see the pattern of that he's trying to perhaps convey a message to her client that what's important is not her skill as an attorney, but that she's pretty and that she can get what she wants from the judge because she struts a certain way. And you don't realize that because it's not done continuously all the time. So again, these, these microaggressions, when do you cross that line that it is now suddenly reportable? I think that the, the rule as proposed is really a high standard. And we do have a duty to report, but we're talking about discrimination and harassment. And we kind of are jumping quickly to discussions about other kinds of behaviors which are really inappropriate and we have witnessed a lot. But whether or not that rises to the level of harassment or discrimination is in some ways sort of a legal call. So it's, the rule sort of has this element of having to have some expertise in those areas. But of course, the bar will take the complaint and then investigate. But I think that the point that Gabriel made is really important in terms of a pattern because that is a way to get to hostile workplace and harassment. And I think what's a little tough about that is it depends then, right? That threshold depends on sort of where you've been and what you've seen. And for a new lawyer, it strikes me that a new lawyer being trained on this rule doesn't have the luxury of a baseline, a, a real good baseline to analyze whether, you know, this not third microaggression is enough, right? And for those of us who practiced a little bit longer, you know, maybe maybe we see that as annoying behavior in opposing counsel, whatever that behavior is, but to be expected in a zealous advocate and, you know, the gloves are off and now we're fighting and we're in litigation and it's kind of rough. Um, so where those lines are drawn, I think, do um, become critically important. And I, and I think it depends on your the level of your perspective to know when that reportable event has occurred. We have in recent weeks had at least three illustrations that I think have made the local media about judges having entered a courtroom and commented on the fact that women uh, were either not present or women were in the courtroom but had no speaking role. And I think things of that nature will certainly enhance the environment and accomplish the objectives that this new rule intends, I think, in part. Judge Hinkle, when you were on the bench, did you feel that counsel treated you differently than they did your male colleagues? Massachusetts judges are not elected judges. We're appointed for life, life being the age of 70. One of the things that results from that is that we need to have some mechanism for evaluating judges, and a very effective mechanism has developed over time. When I was first evaluated, I think I'd been on the bench for three years, and recognizing, as each of us does, that every time a judge makes a decision, somebody loses. I was particularly interested in, because the, the comments were all, of course, anonymous, I was particularly interested in the evaluation. And I was not totally stunned to find a comment that appeared that said, Judge Hinkle and seven other Superior Court women judges are bitches. I was, I was very troubled uh, by that comment. Um, I thought um, 
for a variety of reasons that, and I had hoped that I would be viewed objectively as a judge. The Superior Court in Massachusetts is a judge which has proportionately a fairly large number of women on the bench. And then I happened to be at lunch with several of my female friends on the Superior Court, and we figured out which of us were the judges who were all within this group that had received the comment about being bitches. And I use this as a response to the question that Susan has asked, because I think to some degree, all of us lives in an ivory tower in whatever position that we're holding. We think if we're effective, particularly if, if we're on the bench, that we are, we are not being uh, assessed differently from those who might be different from us in terms of our of our race or our gender or our background or anything of that sort. But in fact, I am sure that the answer to your question is affirmative. Yes, women judges are viewed differently from male judges. Is it a positive or a negative? Sometimes it's probably a little bit of both. I'm Kristen Glennon McGurn, a partner at Cypher Shaw. Diversity and inclusion are not just aspirational words at our law firm. Our efforts are driven through action and continuous improvement. We focus on strengthening the talent pipeline, supporting our attorneys, and building our networks through diversity and inclusion initiatives. Maria, how can women push back against the disparate treatment? If you want my real answer, it's the Walt Disney factor, by which I mean that we can pass laws, and we, we need to, we have. We can adopt uh, regulations. But at the end of the day, unless we can begin to expose all of our children to role models and figures that are not based on stereotypical thinking, it's very hard if a child has been indoctrinated for the first 10, 15 years of their life watching uh, popular media in this country. For female children, who are their role models? I have two daughters, and we used to have lengthy discussions after they saw movies to try and process the fact that they had just seen the female role model as inevitably in search of the love of her life, the heterosexual love of her life, and unfulfilled until she found that. And even if she was strong in some respects, it was a tenth of the strength displayed by the male characters. So we're constantly uh, enculturating members of, of our tribe in these values that we now try to, to correct by regulation and law and admonition that, but until we make that fundamental change in how we are conveying to our children their equality in the world, we're not going to succeed at the other end. I'll just jump off Maria's comment. The issue of women in leadership, I think, cannot be overstated. You know, I think we need to, for our children and our uh, more junior legal colleagues and our law students, enable them to envision the possibilities and provide for them role models who engage in behaviors that they can see themselves performing. They need to have access to senior level sponsors who will be ambassadors for their own development. And we need leadership. We need women in leadership in order to see that happen. So I agree we need to, we need to show, show, show so that people can really see it. 
and uh, learn to live it and build a core of a team that is in support of that mission, that understands the goal and the reasons why it's beneficial and, and really are you know, committed to making the change. I just heard a presentation by one of the training partners at a large firm here in Boston who was going through their rubrics for evaluation of associates. So first-year associates, midterm associates, and senior associates. And one of them was um, when you got to midterm, they were like looking at associates as their relationship to the enterprise, to the firm itself. And one of the questions was, do you respect the time of your colleagues, both lawyers and staff. And I thought this was fabulous because they were trying to create rubrics that are very specific. They're not just like, are you nice to people or something? They're very like, do you respect the time commitments of other people in their lives? And of course, my question was, do these rubrics apply to partners? And she's like, well, no, partners, some are really into it, some not so much, you know. But I think that their goal really is, as stated, is to create a whole cohort of associates who, by the time they reach leadership positions in the firm, be it in senior associate positions or firm positions, they will have a different professional attitude towards things like the time of people with families. So I was interested that one of the things under the new rule was the area of parental discrimination. And I thought that is a big area because these things are synergistic, right? So it's women and parental status, women and sexual identity. The culture has to change. And I don't know exactly how long that will take, but it's not going to be tomorrow, I fear. During the episode, Professor Bartlett says that law schools should help women minimize or overcome specific disadvantageous demeanors or verbal tics. Do you agree? That's a little complicated, I think, more complicated than she made it in the, um, in the podcast. I think Marilyn is doing a great job in that area. I don't think it's necessarily a question of, and this was brought up in the podcast as well, of women having to overcome ticks, but actually everyone having to overcome sort of unprofessional, whatever we're going to define that in, in terms of behaviors, um, conduct before they enter the profession. That said, the very important point is women are judged more harshly for those same conducts than men are. So she came up with upspeak and, you know, the question of the ineffective handshake, which people used to be hired upon. Um, I think that those things, we need to teach students those behaviors that are important to the profession. Um, good communication, uh, certainty assurance, speaking with authority when you have authority and knowledge, those types of behaviors are very, very important. I don't want to only put it in terms of um, a question for women, although we have to admit that law schools have a special responsibility for teaching those who go into the profession with sort of a mark against them in those behavioral contexts how to at least understand that will happen, if not overcome them. Can I just posit another approach that what if we were to try and communicate that the reaction of the viewer or the the audience to the up speaking, uh, for example, is simply a wrong reaction? Remember when the common uh, intelligence was that if you were a witness and you were shaking or you were sweating or you were looking to the left, you were lying, right? 
And then we began to disassemble that assumption. We began to take it apart and say, actually, that, that's no indication whatsoever that you're lying. And here are all the reasons, most of them cultural, why you know we came to those conclusions. I wonder if the same isn't true with some of these behaviors. I mean, my first reaction when I listened to it was, wow, that's really fascinating, and that's very helpful to train women you know, not to engage in behaviors that other people assume mean that the women are weak or ineffective or in other ways uh, unable to assert themselves. But unless there's proof that up-speaking really does mean that you're weak and you're ineffective and you're unable to assert yourself, perhaps we should simultaneously try to educate the broader population not to make judgments that are based on stereotypes. I think I was fortunate to have had a couple of professional experiences which support what Maria has just suggested, one of which was that the year after I graduated law school, I spent some time as a, as a um, federal court clerk, and the judge for whom I clerked wanted his law clerks to be in the courtroom watching a trial all the time. And I had the opportunity during that year to see a wide variety of practitioners. And I think I benefited enormously from recognizing that there was no female style. There was no male style that necessarily worked. There was simply a level of competency that was required effectiveness in order to succeed as a litigator. And I think that's a very important overhang to put on this discussion. The second thing that I think I was enormously, I am enormously grateful for having been able to do, which is to talk to juries after verdicts are returned. And I did that for 18 years. And that experience absolutely convinced me that all kinds of traits succeeded and all kinds of traits failed. And that there really is very little commonality that's based on gender that is effective in persuading uh, a fact finder of the righteousness of a particular position. So I think that it's important not to draw bright lines on authority issues and recognize that it's very difficult to do that. And for that reason, I think I question the extent to which a law school can effectively communicate by way of a course some of, some of these things that were discussed in the podcast. Maria, one of the points you made was that we have a, a cultural problem that women, at least the empirical research, seems to show that they're penalized more heavily for certain specific disadvantageous behaviors. And what Professor Bartlett was suggesting was not only do we need to think about addressing those specific behaviors, but also need to change the way people perceive. And one way that we saw in the episode of uh, one professor was doing that was Maritza Reyes uh, from Florida A&M. And Jeff, I'm curious to know your take on what the challenges would be for you to adopt any of those gender modules that she does in your criminal law classes. First of all, in my personal criminal law class, there is no stopping me from adopting a module here or there. And this is one of the problems in some ways of the uh, unified approach to what law students ought to experience. I can teach my criminal law class like a common law crime class, and another person could teach it sort of like an introduction to forensic science class. And even though it's required, uh, what happens in that class is very much the, you know, is owned by the professor. I think that the biggest barrier to teaching these aspects of professionalism in a unified way 
across the a law school curriculum is the agreement of the faculty to give up time and credits, frankly, to that kind of education. But law faculty are even more conservative than lawyers in terms of the practice and the change of what they're doing. And I think that there is great resistance to add things that they see as one faculty member recently said, soft skills, but the critical skills to lawyering at this point. So that is the biggest barrier. What we have proposed and we're working on creating is a professionalism course for all students. And it's unfortunate that, like ethics, you're putting this question into a separate course and sort of cabining it off where what we should be doing is trying to identify ways to teach these skills through every course throughout the curriculum and um, have a really clear structural plan for that. Kristen, how would you have felt if a professor had gone out of their way to address gender-related issues in a doctrinal course? For me, that's kind of a softball because I gravitated toward um, sort of women's studies and other issues of that sort at Northeastern. So for me, I would have welcomed that. I can say that, and I recall that in some courses it, it did happen even way back then, which was a while back. But I can imagine, I can see the faces of a couple of my classmates who might have not taken so kindly to that and sort of thought of it in the traditional sense that this is a doctrinal course where I'm expecting to get, you know, the fundamental nuts and bolts and not the sort of education that they were trying to provide. You know, that said, I think that, you know, what we're trying to do in these in law schools today is create whole lawyers, people who we want to bring into the fold and perform well and relate well to clients, attract clients, enable relationships that will allow us to have long and deep relationships with those clients. So, you know, I think this sort of addition to doctrinal teaching uh, is a welcome one. I agree with that. I'm just thinking that, as with everything in life, it depends on how it's achieved. And as I've I've been sitting here, I've been remembering a graduate course uh, that I took where I was the only female in the class. And the professor, inevitably, who was not female, would turn to me and say, so, Ms. Walsh, please tell us the women's perspective on this. And, and you know, this heavy burden would fall on my shoulders as I tried to imagine you know, half of the population of the world feeding into my brain some uh, words of wisdom. And I remember sort of thinking, there's no way that I can offer a response to that question and then trying to explain to him uh, why that was the case. And that what would have made perhaps a big difference for me would be if there had been an equality of respect, encouragement, expectations in the, in the class from the, from the professor. And I think in terms of, of law schools now and the way that students are treated in classes is, I think, gives opportunities through the conduct of the, of the professor, um, I'm assuming, to convey that equality of respect and expectation and encouragement and opportunity to everyone in the class. And that there are ways that, that we sort of need to find in the profession to do that more often. Classes, especially larger classes, one of the things that we have found very useful, at least the colleagues who I work with, is to work on issues of implicit bias with our students, to give them some education about the concept of implicit bias. We have our students take an implicit 
bias assessment, the online test, which is really fabulous. And the responses are, you know, amazing in all sorts of directions. People who find, like, I didn't realize that. Some people who, you know, felt that they had very liberal political stances, absolutely certain that the test couldn't have been true about them, that they had wiped out implicit bias in their life. But what this does is it empowers the other students to be able to have the discussion when uh, microaggressions or overt aggressions happen in the classroom. And I find that that is one of the most useful tools is, again, along with your cultural change concept, is giving the students, as soon as they come to law school, and we talk about it even in orientation now at Suffolk, the tools to have this discussion with each other, which is an amazingly powerful area of learning. I want to thank all of the participants today for such a wonderful discussion, and I want to thank in particular Seifarth Shaw for hosting us. Uh, this was the last episode of LST's miniseries, Women in the Law. Theme music by Brad Kemp. Thank you to Olympia Duhart, Kimber Russell, Marissa Olson, Ashley Millen-Tite, Karen Ulrich-Stacey, and Susan Poser. 